0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, and we want to finish out the chapter this morning, verses 13 through 17. And I've entitled the message, uh, The Baptism of Jesus. Well, I know what you're asking. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? Well, that's why we're here this morning. We're trying to figure that out, right? And frankly, you read the commentaries, they're all over the place. And most of them I don't think get it right. We'll talk about it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, this is a very important event in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, his baptism. So, Lord, give me grace to teach it accurately and clearly in a way that brings glory to you, that is helpful for your people as we grow in grace together. And, Lord, if there's anyone listening to the, the story about Jesus and they've never yet come to Jesus... In a life-changing way. They never really had a a saving faith in Jesus until this time. I pray that even today would be their day. They would come. They would come and receive Jesus as their personal Lord, their Master, their Savior. Have your way now as the word goes forth. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. We are looking at the outline. The theme is Christ the King. We're down in chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3, the herald of the king, but then his baptism. That's what we are focused on here this morning. Note, uh, after emphasizing that Jesus meets the genealogical qualifications to be the Messiah in chapter 1, after recognizing that Jesus was born king of the Jews in fulfillment of prophecy as seen in chapter 2, we then find the prophesied forerunner to the Messiah bursting onto the scene in fulfillment of prophecy in chapter 3. And uh, we noted this last time in our study, Matthew chapter 3, verse 3. This is he, this one who suddenly bursts onto the scene, crying for repentance. Uh, This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, Isaiah gave this prophecy in Isaiah 40, verse 3, about 700 years in advance. 700 years before it was fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, uh, unique to him, unique to him in terms of the prophets in the Bible, uh, came crying in the wilderness. uh, Heralding in the wilderness. It's not like he was crying tears. I mean, maybe there's a few of those, but but he's crying in the sense of heralding out. Now, no other prophet did this. Unique. Who goes out to a barren isolated place and starts calling people to come to repentance. Number one problem, nobody's out there, right? It's barren. It's isolated. It's like a desert. Nobody out there. We looked at this area last day. Uh, But here he is out there in the barren area just crying for people. Guess what? They showed up. People started coming. God was in it. It all lined up perfectly with God's plan and what he had said in prophecy. A footnote uh, to Isaiah 40, verse 3. You know, in my ministry, I constantly emphasize uh, that we need to think in context. It's a huge mega emphasis in, in my ministry. This prophecy of the coming forerunner in Isaiah 40 is found in a messianic kingdom context. That's what Isaiah 40 is about. It's a kingdom chapter. Note how the chapter begins. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. That's that's the lead-in to the chapter. Well, what is the basis of this coming comfort for the people of God? Well, it's the coming Messiah who was prophesied to have a forerunner go before him and prepare the way by calling the people to repentance. You see, before the comfort of the kingdom can come, the people must come to repentance. The way you enjoy the comfort of the kingdom is through repentance and belief in the Messiah. So, comfort my people leads to what we've already noted, Isaiah 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. Isaiah then assumes that the people will respond to the forerunner in repentance and the Messiah will then bring in the kingdom. Note the flow of the chapter moves down to verse 5. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed on the heels of this forerunner who's proclaiming repentance. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Move down to verse 10. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work, that is, his kingdom work in context, before him. Well, Isaiah then goes on to describe the incomparable greatness of God and rounds out this Messianic kingdom chapter with these words. The end of the chapter. You've read these words many times in isolation of the context, haven't you? Don't confess publicly here, but I think we have. Isaiah 40, verse 30. Even the youth shall feign to be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait, what are we waiting for? Those who wait on the Lord. We're waiting for this promised comfort to come. We're waiting for this promised kingdom comfort to come. That's what we're waiting for. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. People fail in making any lasting mark in the world. The new administration is going to certainly make things much more comfortable, almost kingdom-like. Probably not. Same as the last administration and the one before that. People fail to bring this about. They fail in finding any lasting source of comfort or providing it, making it happen. As Isaiah emphasizes, people are like grass that quickly withers and fades away. But in context, those who wait on the Lord will will find renewed strength. In context, this is kingdom strength. When the Messiah comes, he will bring about restoration. He will renew the strength of his people in the kingdom. They shall mound up with wings like eagles. We're really going to soar then. We shall run and not be weary. Walk and not faint. What a day that's going to be when Messiah brings in the kingdom. All this to say, this is what John the Baptist was talking about when he said in Matthew 3:2, Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. He was presenting the offer of the kingdom prophesied in Isaiah 40, On the condition of repentance. The king was now here. We saw that. He was born king of the Jews. He's here. And the offer of the kingdom was being made on the condition of repentance. Sadly, put a selah here. Selah. You know, Sila, stop and think about this in the Psalms. Anyway. (laughs) Sadly, Israel did not repent. And the kingdom offer was put on hold. But there is one more thing I need to do. Uh, But there is one more aspect to the forerunner story. We find that Elijah in the Old Testament was a type of John the Baptist. Turns out there are two aspects to the forerunner story. John the Baptist fulfilled one aspect as related to his, the Messiah's first coming. But there's another aspect yet to be fulfilled in the person of Elijah in relation to Christ's second coming. Both comings have a forerunner reality. John the Baptist clearly said he was not Elijah, as seen in John 1.21. John the Baptist was not Elijah, but he was a type of Elijah, who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Remember, before the birth of John the Baptist, an angel told his father, Zacharias, speaking of John the Baptist, he will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It was in this sense of typology that Jesus said John the Baptist was... Elijah and he did say that Matthew eleven fourteen. and if you are willing to receive it he speaking of John the Baptist in context is Elijah who is to come and then again in Mark 9 13 I say to you that Elijah has also come and they did to him whatever they wished as it is written of him you see John the Baptist's message was not received not by the leaders not by the majority in Israel the people did not repent until the kingdom did not come and so the mission of the forerunner in that sense was left unfulfilled but it must yet be fulfilled you know following isaiah 40 verse 3 that prophecy about the forerunner we have this in context every valley shall be exalted Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. And the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Yes, the voice crying in the wilderness was partially fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. But the response of genuine repentance was largely missing. Everything was not made straight. The glory of the Lord was not revealed to all flesh in terms of kingdom glory. That is yet future. And this aspect will yet be fulfilled in the person of another forerunner by the name of Elijah. Elijah will one day be brought back to life, not in glorified form, but revived in his mortal body. And he will then bring to complete fulfillment. The forerunner prophecies. This is where Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 comes in. Last book in the Old Testament. How's it sign off? Behold, I send you Elijah. What? Elijah's been dead for many, 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 many years. Prophecy. I send you, behold, sit up, take note of this. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet. Before the coming and great and dreadful day of the Lord. There you go. Black and white. Prophecy from God. To this day, the Jews are waiting for Elijah to come because of this prophecy. At Passover, they set an empty chair for him. And during the meal, someone will go to see if he's at the door. They're still expecting Elijah to come before the Messiah comes. And in this They're right. Just one problem. They have misunderstood that in reference to the Messiah, there's two comings. They're waiting for the Messiah, the Jews are, to come the first time. They're waiting for Elijah. They don't understand. He has come, and his forerunner did come, in the person of John the Baptist, who was a type of Elijah. Jesus said in Matthew 17, verse 11... Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. He will get the job done. We believe he's one of the two witnesses in Revelation 11.3 because of the prophecy in Malachi 4.5 where Revelation 11.3 says, And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. We believe that one of these two special witnesses in the tribulation period will be Elijah. My personal view is that the other one will probably be Moses. Neither one are mentioned, but we do have the specific prophecy about Elijah in Malachi four or five. Everybody pretty much agrees he's one of these two guys in Revelation eleven. Now, uh, I think uh, this is a great summary of what we're talking about here this morning. John the Baptist is and McGee. John the Baptist had come in the spirit of Elijah. If they had accepted Jesus as the Messiah, John would have been the fulfillment of the prophecy. However, since they did not accept Jesus as their Messiah at his first coming, the prophecy of Elijah as his forerunner would be fulfilled at his second coming. Ah, exactly. Well, when you put all the Elijah prophecies and references together, it is clear that we have a double reference to Elijah in view in the scriptures. John the Baptist was a typical fulfillment. He was the forerunner in the spirit and power of Elijah and had Israel accepted Jesus as their Messiah at that time, those Elijah prophecies would have then been fulfilled in him. However, God knows all things and he knew they wouldn't. Hence, there is yet another literal fulfillment of Elijah as the forerunner to the second coming of the Messiah. As it turns out, Christ has two comings, and at each coming, the Elijah-like forerunner is in view. Typically, John the Baptist fulfilled this in regard to his first coming. But the actual Elijah will literally fulfill it in completion in relation to his second coming. Now, we saw last time that John the Baptist, in fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 40, verse 3, came preaching repentance in the wilderness of Judea. In chapter 3, we noted last time in verse 11, uh, John was saying, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But then he all said another was coming after him who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Well, that brings us to where we're at in our study today. Brings us to chapter uh, 3 and verse 13 and the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. All four Gospels record this event showing the importance of it. This is not a little footnote that's uh, insignificant. This is, a, this is a major event. Let's pick it up. Matthew three thirteen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jonathan Jordan <clears throat> to be baptized by him. Well, at the end of chapter 2 in Matthew, we saw Jesus as a child with his family went and lived in Nazareth. Nazareth of Galilee. Now, fast forward about 30 years or so. In chapter 3, we have Jesus now coming from there, from from Galilee, to where John the Baptist at the Jordan was baptizing people. This event would mark the beginning of Christ's public ministry. And in Luke 3.23, it says at that time he was about 30 years of age. So just uh, to note the map uh, here, here's Jesus raised up here in Nazareth. And here he's making his way down. We believe John the Baptist was near the the mouth of the Dead Sea here, somewhere in this area, (coughs) baptizing uh, people. So about 60 miles. Makes the way down from Nazareth, specifically coming all the way down here so that he could be baptized by John the Baptist. Verse 14. (coughs) And John tried to prevent him, saying... That's a major chore, by the way. Uh, The Lord wants to do something, and you try to prevent him. Good luck on that. I don't believe in luck, of course, but uh, it's just almost kind of ironic. John tried to prevent him, saying, "I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me?" In John one twenty nine, we read that as John saw Jesus coming to him, what did he say? "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world." In conjunction with what was happening. God at this time made known to John the Baptist that Jesus was indeed the the Messiah, that he had been preparing the way before. And in that same context in John, after behold the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, we read in verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. So John said, this is the one. I've been preparing the way. I've been telling you about this coming one. And now he says, this is, this is the one. John the Baptist went on to say in John 1, that prior to this occasion, when Jesus came to get baptized, he did not know who the Messiah was. But... The Spirit descending on him at that time, at the time of his baptism, became the confirming sign that he was indeed the exalted Messiah. Note John 1, 33, 34. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Wow! What an amazing testimony. With this new insight coming into view, John tried to prevent Christ from undergoing his baptism, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? In this statement, John recognized both the superiority... And the sinlessness of Christ in contrast to himself. You see, John, I think, saw himself clearly as a sinner, but not Jesus. John recognized that his baptism signified repentance. Isn't that what he said back in verse 11? I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. He knew what he was doing, but that was totally inappropriate. For Christ, because he was not a sinner. He needed no repentance. And in this, John was right. This is totally out of character to what he's been doing all along in terms of re- baptizing people, signifying their repentance. So John recognized that Jesus was the superior one coming after him, whose sandals he was not worthy to carry. This was the one who had baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Something only God can do. So what was this about? Why was Christ requesting John to baptize him? And forcefully so. In context, John has just said that the one coming after him would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Perhaps this is what John meant when he said, I need to be baptized by you. However, since the issue is John's baptism at this point... John may have simply been indicating that in terms of water baptism signifying repentance, this more aptly applied to himself rather than to Jesus. Whatever the case, he had some serious reservations about baptizing Christ since he has just said in verse 11 that his baptism signified repentance. And we saw in verse 6 that the people being baptized by John were confessing their sins. You can see why John thought this baptism was not appropriate for Jesus, right? I mean, of all the people in the world, he doesn't need to confess his sins. He doesn't need to repent. He doesn't need to identify with that message of John the Baptist in that, in that respect. Now, there has been no end of commentary on what Christ's baptism means. And frankly, in my opinion... I almost said humble, but I'm not sure that's true. (laughs) Frankly, many commentators, in my view, spin a lot of yarn here saying things the text does not actually say. It's always good to just stay right there, not venture any further off the track than what the text actually says. (laughs) I guess I don't have to emphasize this with you because none of you have written commentaries. But anyway, in order to properly understand... I think there are four things in particular to take note. Number one, the meaning of baptism. Number two, the two-pronged identification ministry of John the Baptist. Number three, Christ's explanation of what was happening. And number four, the Father's confirming testimony on this occasion. When you put all of those things together, it becomes clear, at least in my mind, what the purpose was of Christ being baptized by John. Now, Let's begin. Many people, I think, have a very shallow understanding of baptism. For many, they see it no deeper than an outward physical ritual, which is to miss the major point. The word baptize in the Greek has two meanings. Its primary meaning is to dip under or to immerse. But also has a secondary meaning, which doesn't mean it's uh, less significant. The secondary meaning is to dip into dye, with the idea of permanent identification. To dip a piece of cloth into dye resulted in it being permanently identified with the dye. Hence, the idea of identification. The essential meaning of baptism is consistently identification. Now, there are various kinds of baptism in the Bible, but the idea is consistently that of identification. Let me give you just a little feel for this. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 and 2. Paul writing says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. In the cloud and in the sea. You know something about this event? The great exodus, they went through the dry sea. You know something about that baptism? This baptism into Moses? Not a single one of them got wet. We're not even talking sprinkling here. Right? Right. Nobody got wet! Say, massive baptism! It was uh, was the Egyptians who got baptized. (laughs) Nobody got wet! In terms of the people of God here. The idea is that they were all, are you ready for this? Identified with Moses in this experience of going through the sea. My point is baptism means identification consistently. There are different baptisms found in the different kinds of baptisms in the New Testament. And those of you on the front row are blessed to be there because you can read this. Uh, We have dry baptisms And we have wet baptisms. Moses in the cloud, as we've already noted, was not a wet baptism. Christ's cup. Spirit baptism. And the baptism by fire. All dry baptism. Baptism used in reference to to all of those things, which are dry. And then there's the wet ones. John the Baptist's baptism. Jesus' own baptism. uh, Jesus' disciples' baptism while he was here on the earth. And then believers... Water baptism, related to the church age. Bottom line, my emphasis here this morning, Dr. Ray Richard, if the meaning of baptism could be boiled down to one word, that word would be identification. I was just going to say that, but thank you, Albert. Amen. (laughs) Amen. That's it. J. Vernon McGee, actually, baptism means identification, and I believe identification was the primary purpose for the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to my first point, understand that the essential idea of baptism is consistently identification. Second, what did Jesus say? Verse 15. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. What Jesus said made all the difference in John's mind. Okay. Now, John did not initially think it was fitting, but Jesus pointed out that it was, saying it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That was good enough for John the Baptist. Okay. But what exactly did Jesus mean? Righteousness refers to that which is right before God. Rightness, righteousness. To fulfill all righteousness means to do all that is right. As pointed out before, Jesus himself did not need repentance, which is what John the Baptist's baptism signified. So, what righteousness was lacking? What righteousness needed to be fulfilled? Great question. And one that has been struggled with for years. And because it's, because of this, there's all kinds of views out on the table. We could spend hours discussing all of those views. I'm not going to do that. Keep in mind, the main idea in baptism is identification. John the Baptist is so called because of the prominence of baptism in his ministry. We could call him John the Identifier, right? From now on, in this church, let's call him John the Identifier. I'm just kidding. But I'm making a point. That's his ministry. It's about identification. John the Baptist. John the identifier. Because that's the essential meaning of baptism. But here's the question. What was his identifying ministry? As I said before, I believe it had a two-pronged emphasis. John was identifying repenters in baptism in preparation for the coming Messiah. But there was another major aspect of identification associated with his God-ordained ministry, and that was the identification of the Messiah. In order to fulfill all righteousness, he also needed to identify the Christ as the Messiah. It was not enough just to prepare the way. John also needed to introduce him, to make him known, to identify him as the one whom he had prepared the way before. So note the two aspects of John's ministry. Repenters identified with the message of repentance. That's not Jesus. That's repenters who need to confess their sins. But also the Messiah identified with the message of the coming superior one. John in the Gospel of John Verse chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, it says there, there was a man sent from God. That's where he came from. God sent him. Whose name was John. John the Baptist. This man came for a witness. To bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. Yeah, he wanted to call them to repentance in preparation, but also to be a witness to the light that people might believe. That second prong to his ministry. He was not that light but was sent to bear witness of that light. He pointed to the light. You see, John didn't come only to call people to repentance, but to call them to the light of Christ so they might believe. Double prong, repent and believe. That's John's ministry. He came not only to prepare the people through repentance, but also to introduce them to Jesus so they might believe on him. John's ministry, therefore, had a two-fold identification emphasis. Identifying repenters and identifying the Messiah. Thus, his baptism served a two-fold identification purpose. The baptism of Jesus was a totally unique thing, unlike any other. And the significance of it was different. In Chapter 1 of John 33, 34, where he says, I did not know him, but, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, okay, you, you've got this mission, baptizing people in, in preparation for the coming Messiah. But in that context, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is how you'll know. And, I, and he says, I've seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So John was told by God that in his baptizing ministry, the experience with the coming great one would be totally unique. He would see the spirit descending on him. John saw this, and then he's, therefore he testified, "This is the Son of God. This was the fulfillment of the righteous purpose that God had for this baptism. It was to identify Jesus as the divine human Messiah through John's ministry. Just imagine if Jesus hadn't been baptized, we wouldn't have had any of this. This would have not taken place. We wouldn't have had the Spirit descending on him visibly. We wouldn't have had the voice come from heaven. God had a specific purpose to identify the Messiah through John's ministry. This role of identifying Israel's Messiah was of such a great importance that Jesus said of John, this is in Matthew chapter 11, He challenged the people there, saying of John the Baptist, A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. And then he said, Among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. In terms of his prophetic role, no one ever had a higher or more privileged position than John the Baptist. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that that you may be saved. Remember, John's message was not just of man. It was God who was behind it. And he says he he was the burning and shining lamp. That's what he was. He was a flaming witness for me. And you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. One day the religious leaders challenged Jesus, asking him by what authority... He did these things that he was doing. is in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus responded by saying that he would also ask them one question, which if they told him, he would then answer their question as well. And I'm sure they were thinking, what is he going to ask us? And his question was this. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? Matthew twenty-one twenty-five. These evil men reasoned if we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? You see, John's baptism was from heaven. And it ultimately communicated a message about the Messiah with divine authority that should have been believed. As John testified... When he baptized Christ, he saw the Spirit descending and remaining on him, and he testified, this is the Son of God. This is the ultimate meaning found in John baptizing Jesus. You say, well, I think it means this and this and this and this. Stick with the text. It was all about who Jesus was. as further confirmed by the Father. Note the language carefully when Jesus says to John, it is fitting for us. Those two little words are very important. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. This is something they were to do together. Fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In John one twenty six and twenty seven, John the Baptist said, There stands one among you whom you do not know. He didn't even know until the time he came for baptism. And he says, it is he who is coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to lose. Jesus, in undergoing John's baptism, was identifying with that aspect of John's message. Jesus, as the coming Messiah, insisted on identifying with John's message because it was right. It fulfilled all righteousness. It completed John's message. He is among them. He is here. And this is he. The message of John and the person of Christ went together, like hand and glove. Jesus was the fulfillment of John's message. And John's message would have been incomplete had he not identified with John's message that he is the one. They are linked, which was the message of John baptizing Christ. As Christ said, thus it is fitting for us, doing this together, to fulfill all righteousness. Well, seeing it this way, John could not disagree. And the text says, then he allowed him. And to confirm that Christ's baptism was essentially all about who he was as the coming Messiah, we have confirmation from heaven on this very point as seen in verse 16 and 17. Verse 16, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Note the language, Jesus coming up from the water is consistent with the word baptized meaning to immerse. This verse has Messiah written all over it. We have John's testimony that God had told him this supernatural spirit phenomenon would accompany the superior one coming after him. But beyond that, beyond what God revealed to John the Baptist, that you're going to see the, the Spirit descending on him. Beyond that, we have Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be uniquely anointed with the Holy Spirit. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is a prophecy concerning the Messiah. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. The baptism of Jesus was in in effect His official inauguration into public ministry. Shortly after Christ's baptism in Luke 4, 14, it says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He went back to His hometown, Nazareth. He went into the synagogue. He opened the scroll up to this very passage in Isaiah 61 and then precisely read verses 1 and 2a. When He had finished reading, He said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus was saying that this messianic passage applied to him and was now being fulfilled in him. And that was an astounding thing to say. left the audience marveling. Isaiah chapter 11. Another messianic prophecy. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, David's father, of the Davidic line. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Oh, how does that relate to what we're studying this morning? The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. But I want you to zero in on it. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The point is that the Messiah would be uniquely anointed with the Spirit. And this happened to Jesus in perfect fulfillment of Isaiah's messianic prophecy in conjunction with John the Baptist's ministry. You see, in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed, indicating they were uniquely chosen and appointed by God to this role. These anointings prefigure the ultimate anointed one who would perfectly fulfill all these offices of prophet, priest, and king in one person. Thus, he would be uniquely anointed with the Holy Spirit for this role. You see, the very meaning of Messiah, that's Hebrew, or corresponding Greek Christ, is anointed one. Messiah Christ means anointed one. So Jesus the Christ means Jesus the anointed one. He was uniquely chosen and empowered by God. He was uniquely anointed with the Spirit in His earthly ministry in fulfillment of prophecy. As John 3.34 says, Jesus was given the Spirit without measure. In other words, Jesus in His humbled state of the Incarnation was fully endowed with the Spirit. And we have this testimony in the book of Acts. Peter says, That word you know which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism, which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. And with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus is eternal God. He was always God. And in coming to earth, he did not cease in any way to be fully God. He merely added humanity to his eternal deity. But in that state of humility, he set aside the independent use of his divine attributes. As the great representative of humanity, the perfect man, the God-man, as the great representative of humanity, he functioned in the power of the Holy Spirit each step of the way. Never a misstep. He's our great example. The perfect example of what it means to live a life completely yielded and empowered by the Spirit. His obedience and his empowerment were perfect. The point is that as the Messiah, he was uniquely anointed with the Spirit. And evidently, God the Father gave both John the Baptist and Jesus a visible manifestation of the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and remaining on Jesus. Now, the imagery of a dove is fitting for the Spirit because the dove is a symbol of innocence, gentleness, peace, and purity. Stanley Toussaint says, this anointing of The spirit at Christ's baptism was a divine mark of God's appointment of Jesus to his messianic work. And that's what it was. And then just for the ultimate amen confirmation, we go to verse 17. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This announcement from heaven at the baptism of Christ is God the Father's affirmation that this indeed is The God-ordained Messiah. This was the key point and message of Christ's baptism. It fulfilled all righteousness in that it was God's appointed way to endow Jesus with the Spirit and thereby affirm His Messiahship in conjunction with John the Baptist's message and ministry. It was the capstone fulfillment of John's prophetic ministry. It's the high point. Three times in the ministry of Christ, we have the Father verbally speaking from heaven. At his baptism, here. Two, at Christ's transfiguration. And three, just prior to the cross. Bible Knowledge Commentary says the the significant thing about the baptism of Jesus was the authentication from heaven. Ah, that's it. The authentication from heaven. And what is the Father authenticating? Well, we read it right there. This is my beloved Son. What did John the Baptist say when he saw the Spirit? I testify, this is the Son of God. What did the Father say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well placed. What's the point of all of this? The identification of Jesus for who he was as the Messiah. Here in Matthew 3.17, the voice of the Father conflated two Messianic emphases from the Old Testament Scriptures, as seen in Psalm 2.7. And Isaiah 42.1, both of these are very rich messianic texts. This shows that Jesus is the Messiah and that his messiahship is to be understood in light of the Old Testament prophecies depicting the coming Messiah. Psalm 2.7, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, let's unpack this, albeit so ever briefly. The emphasis in this messianic psalm is that the son is given rule over the nations. Be wise. Kiss the son. Uh, Be wise. Uh, He's on his way. You better get right with him before he he walks all over you. That's where the psalm concludes. Vince, you preached on this not too long ago, right? Psalm chapter 2. This emphasis is on Him ultimately ruling over the nations. In Christ's baptism, God the Father recognizes Jesus for who He was as His Son. The phrase, today I have begotten you, is applied to the resurrection in Acts chapter 13, verse 33. You see, as God, Jesus was always God the Son. That's an eternal reality. From all eternity, He was over all creation, including the angels. But in His incarnation, Christ humbled Himself and put Himself... Functionally, in a position of being a little lower than the angels, according to Hebrews 2 9. But then in the resurrection, something happened. Christ, not only as God, but now also as the God man, was exalted to a position far above all principality and powers. In the resurrection, Christ's humanity now shared in the glory that his Godhood had eternally known. In that sense, God says, Today I have begotten you. Jesus did not become God's Son on the occasion of his baptism, but rather God the Father simply recognized him for who he already was. Henry M. Morris says, He did not become the Son at his baptism, as some have assumed, for the Father had loved the Son, quote, before the foundation of the world, John 17, 24. Understand that saying Jesus is the Son of God emphasizes his nature as being that of God. It means that he is of the very order and nature of God. This is consistently how the New Testament uses this title. It is a title of deity. Note in uh, Matthew chapter, just examples, Matthew 14, then those who, this is where Jesus calms the storm, then those who were in the boat, the disciples, came, and what did they do? They worshipped him which is to be attributed only to God, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Son of God means deity, the one who is to be worshipped. John five eighteen. therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father. And how did they understand that? Making himself equal with God. The Jews consistently understood the title Son of God to mean that Jesus was himself very God which is true. It is a title of deity emphasizing that Jesus has a very special and unique eternal relationship with the Father. That Jesus is God's Son was both John's testimony in conjunction with Christ's baptism as well as that of God the Father. And then this phrase at the end of the verse, in whom I am well pleased, ties with Isaiah 42, verse 1. Another Messianic text from Isaiah of which there are many. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. There's the thought. Well pleased. My soul delights in this one. And what, what does he do? I have put my spirit upon him. That's what we're studying here. And he will bring forth justice of the Gentiles. Realize that God saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased was stated by the Father at the beginning of Christ's ministry. It looks back over the last 30 years of mostly silence in what are called the hidden years in Nazareth. There in the routine of life, God had quietly been preparing Jesus to go forth in His public ministry, culminating in His sacrifice on the cross and His resurrection. Thus the Father affirmed that Christ, as his son, had lived in perfect harmony with heaven. All of those silent years. How wonderful the Father affirmed those silent years. They weren't just wasted years. The Father was well placed. This too was part of God's plan. And it's a good reminder. Sometimes you go through silent times, and we're not in you know, a visible way, nothing really happening too much, kind of carrying on in the mundane routine times might seem like, well, that's not very exciting, not very fruitful, but God has a purpose for those times too. Well, God was well pleased with his beloved son, he is the one in whom his soul delights. He is pleased supremely with this perfect servant. His obedience was 100% all the time. He did nothing but please the father in his role of humility. There was no exception. He never sinned. And note the Trinity as represented in Isaiah chapter 42 and other places in Isaiah. I'm just going to put this up here. We're not really going to deal, but uh, chapter 42, verse 1, you got three. I, that's God the Father, my servant, Messianic reference, and my spirit, and so forth. All of these texts, the reality of the Trinity is also clearly seen here in Matthew 3, 16 and 17. The Son is baptized. The Spirit descends. The Father speaks. David Berggraff says, Not only is the Trinity foundational, it is also unique to Christianity. You Think about that. What's unique to Christianity? One of the things that's unique to Christianity is the doctrine of the Trinity. Of the three major monotheistic religions of the world, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, only Christianity teaches the Trinity. Human reason, however, cannot fathom the Trinity, nor can logic explain it. And although the word itself is not found in the scriptures, the doctrine is plainly taught. The Trinity is arguably the most distinctive doctrine of Christianity. Understanding that God is a triune God and always has been a triune God became the cornerstone of Christian theology that distinguished it from paganism and other monotheistic religions. And that's true. And we affirm that from the very beginning, right? We do. From the very beginning of our baptism, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is represented there in that baptismal formula. Darrell Whitmer says, denying the doctrine of the triune nature of God is often the distinguishing mark of a cult or false religion. And that's true. There is no way to compromise on this truth. It's a perfect example of why it's so illogical to claim that all religions are the same. And C.S. Lewis said something quite insightful. He, he was you know, not many wise, but there are a few, and he happened to be one. He had a brilliant mind. C.S. Lewis said, All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love. Boy, don't they love to say, God is love, you hateful one. God is love. (laughs) Forget holiness. He's he's love. And that just means he's accepting everything. Kind of like a, a huge trash container just takes in everything. Doesn't matter what it is. God is love. But he says, But they seem not to notice the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another. If God were a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Oh, that's some good thinking there. How, that, how true that is. Another commentator says, For God to be fu- fully personal, then capable of love and community, there must be genuine plurality within the divine being itself. Historic Christian theology teaches that these interpersonal attributes were expressed from all eternity among the three persons of the Trinity. Uh, just real quickly here. Trinity in the New Testament. Baptism of Jesus. The Son was baptized, the Spirit appeared as a dove, the Father spoke. Baptism of all believers, as I mentioned, Matthew 28, 19. All believers are baptized in the name, singular, denoting there's one Godhead, but there's three in this Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We acknowledge that from day one as, as baptized believers. In our baptism, we are acknowledging this. The angel Gabriel's words to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. The Father, the Holy One to be, will be called the Son of God. Indwelling all believers, Spirit of God dwells in you, Christ in you, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Paul's benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's wrap this up, shall we? You say, boy, that's what I was thinking, Pastor. You're with me now. (laughs) Note the theme that Matthew is driving home. We've been studying this for about, well, five or six weeks, whatever we are into this. But note the theme that Matthew is driving home, just blow after blow after blow after blow. Jesus meets all the Old Testament genealogical requirements to be the Messiah. Check. Check. Jesus as Messiah, in accordance with prophecy, was born in the right place, Bethlehem of Judea. Check. The Messiah in worship would receive gifts from the Gentiles. Thus the wise men came from the east to worship the newborn king of the Jews. Check. Jesus lived in Nazareth, fulfilling the prophetic portrait that he would be a despised person. Check. Jesus had a forerunner, crying in the wilderness in keeping with Messianic prophecy. Check. Check. Jesus experienced a most unique anointing of the Holy Spirit at his baptism in keeping with Messianic prophecy. Check. See the pattern? The life of Jesus Christ matches perfectly in fulfillment of all the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. He truly is the Christ. The prophesied coming one who would be the divine human Savior. The only question that remains is this. Is he your personal Lord and Savior? It's not enough just to know the truth intellectually. We must respond to it from the heart. As the Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And it also says, behold, now is the accepted time. What do you need to do? Repent and believe. That two-pronged emphasis of John the Baptist then segues into the ministry of Christ, segues into the ministry of the apostles. It all builds. But what's the response God's demanding? Repent. Acknowledge you're a sinner and acknowledge Jesus is the light. He's the answer. Put your faith in Him. He died for all of your sins. He rose again as Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you too will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.